Welcome to the Out of the Woods podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition to the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Thanks for having me again. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of April 24th, 2023. So Lee, I wanted to start with one that I know people have been seeing probably a lot of traction with because of the 3CX stuff, but Symantec had a blog that came out. It was the X-Trader supply chain attack, which I believe Mandy was the ones that discovered through their investigation at 3CX that there might have been another supply chain compromise that led to the 3CX compromise, and that was with X-Trader. Um, and what was interesting is they went through and were hunting based on their findings and identified that there were actually two critical infrastructures, orgs, and energy that were impacted by this, as well as two financial trading companies. Um, but, you know, the, the whole supply chain attack vector in itself um, is really effective against heavily guarded and more mature infrastructure if you're able to pull that type of attack off because you kind of are able to slip through and get past. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that's interesting is I'm not necessarily always a huge fan of compliance, but I know a lot of compliance requirements, especially with the earlier supply chain stuff that happened with solar winds, they put a lot of onus on the companies that were, um, that are going to be receiving the software from these companies. And, you know, one of the things I remember going through those processes was every single company that we were getting software from, you had to almost validate it in a different way. And I thought maybe that was the wrong approach. Maybe there needs to be where if you're identified as a software distributor or software developer, that you need to have a consistent standardized process amongst everybody. So it's much easier for these, you know, third party entities that are using your software are able to validate and have a good, well-defined process uh, to get through all that. So, you know, that was something that kind of my thoughts there. And then just from a hunting perspective, you know, one of the things I think I've seen a lot with some of the supply chain stuff that's been occurring and even past supply chain like stuff is it's a lot of DLL sideloading that's happening. And something that, you know, we kind of keep an eye out for is when you see executables and DLLs kind of being dropped within the same directory, and it's not your typical like install directory stuff, uh, it kind of always seems to look suspicious. So it's, it's worth taking note of those you know, odd locations once you've got the right exclusion list in place. And I believe not all tools produce the appropriate telemetry for that type of detection. Now, obviously that's where Sysmon is great because you can see where new files created rules. Um, that you can establish there and some EDRs have it, but um, that's something else to consider as well. So yeah, what are some of your thoughts on this type of thing that's been going on? So I, I just think it gets crazier by the minute, right? Like <laughs> first you have to worry about your own systems, you know, and then now you have to worry about if I'm you know, implementing open source stuff in my environment, you know, is that compromised? Who, you know, who's validating that? Now, if I actually purchase from a vendor, how do I know that they're secure? I just think it's getting crazier and crazier. The threat actors, I got to give them credit, are uh, 
creating these chains that get longer and longer that eventually like you know along the way they're compromising more and more individuals which from their point of view is probably very beneficial because if they have it's just more hooks along that chain right mm -hmm. so you compromise one company you might get 20 people then you use one of those companies to compromise someone else now you have 50 it just goes on and on it makes solar winds kind of like child's <laughs> play right um, well it's funny is you know it's like the extreme opposite spectrum of like ransomware like you get hit they're in your environment for the shortest period of time possible and then like this whole supply chain vector is really the longest long game oh god yeah like you know because i mean i'm sure how long it would have been if like mandian hadn't discovered x trader was even involved you know oh yeah we would just be focusing on you know 3cx like who's got 3cx then they could have just said okay well now what do we where do we go how do we leverage this but i know you mentioned sysmon and First of all, I know we talked about this length on our uh, live podcast, but I will say there is another aspect that of Sysmon that I really love. And it's so it captures hashes, right? Kind of like most of them or most tools out there, but it includes the import hash or the imp hash. And oh, yeah. I was really get into that because I was like, well, you know, we got SHA-256, we got MV5, what's, what's the difference? And what seems valuable to me is about that impatch is that it doesn't look at the code of the program. It looks at the libraries and the imports and the functions that exist. So if it's the same thing over and over, um, so in, in my mind, once again, from a third party perspective, I like to contextualize the information that I have. So if I get a malicious known SHA-256 and I have an impatch that's right next to it, if I can see that the SHA-256 is not the same in the next instance, but the impatch is, that can give me an idea that it's using the same libraries, it's, it's possibly using the same functions, and it operates the same, and it's pulling in the same information. Because if you have the same functions, but you just change some characters, yeah, the SHA-256 is going to change, but if you're just looking at the overall structure, the impatch might not. So another function of Sysmon that is just stellar. Yeah, so looking, so we're looking you know, all the time. Right. Pairing those hashes together, the import hash with the SHA-256, I think would really make this stand out. And if you have third-party stuff like this in your environment, which everyone does, you know, start collecting that information, find the, find the most up-to-date pairs, right? If there's an upgrade, you know, the shot once again, is the SHA-256 changing or is the impatch? Note that and say, this is our latest and greatest. So if something does change, then, you know, you could possibly find a malicious piece of software out there if it doesn't correlate with an upgrade or an update. You know, you, you kind of got my head spinning on an idea of why these supply chain slash DLL sideloading can be really effective. I'm assuming application whitelisting is only looking at the executable and not the malicious DLL. So when you're able to get supply chain like attack vector and there's in a really secure environment that has say application whitelisting which is one of the strongest controls that might be an effective bypass if it's a known software that's already whitelisted that you now know you can load dll's into to make it do different things yeah so interesting that's all i got cool yeah that's all, all i want to really touch on there so if you want to jump on yours your next one yeah my first uh, my first article is from the was from Fortinet, the FortiGuard Labs threat research. Uh, it's called Evil Extractor All-in-One Stealers. I'm a fan of these all-in-ones because it's just, it screams Metasploit, Cobalt Strike, Rubitel, you know, all these threat emulators or, you know, toolkits that people are creating. 
ironically, once again, it claims that it's an educational tool, which, <laughs> you know, how, I don't know if it's for clout or for fame or whatever the case may be, or just, just because, is it ego? But people creating these tools have got to have an idea that people are going to get a hold of this and people are going to use it the wrong way, right? <laughs> if I tell yeah, the whole one suite that goes, gets, you know, bypasses EDR, bypasses AV, like it's, that's not good, right? Yeah. But so, you know, it's called Evo Extractor and, you know, it starts with the good old initial access or the, at least the campaigns they witnessed, it starts with good old, you know, phishing email. So we got the initial access where they drop it and they make it look like it's Adobe PDF icon so that people think that, okay, you know, this is a legitimate file. Then it uses Python and PowerShell to actually get into the system and extract some files, extract the actual malware itself. and then. Of course, it goes through and does looks for all the or runs all the anti sandbox environment um, checks. Right, it looks for date and time checking, looks for in a, hosted in a virtual box, VMware, Hyper-V, or you know, you name it. It checks for VMs. So it actually, and what I will say, one thing that really got me that I thought was a really neat function of it was it pulled a list of 187 name host names of uh, of machines from virus total or other machines are like you know other their scanner or virtual machines and they added that list into the check so if it was like a well-known sandbox possibly used by um you know a well-known researcher like i see some names in here i see like you yeah. know john pc julia pc those are kind of you know pretty ambiguous and you can but then ironically i see an archibald PC, I see a test 42, a coffee shop, like all these names that might be possible to figure out who was running tests, you know, who's using these machines and what for. And you can identify like, hey, you know, these researchers work at this organization, company, and they just might be independent. But either way, they added it to check, you know, if I'm on one of these machines and get out of there and destroy it. So, you know, once it checks it, it drops the zip file. Then drops another zip file, and then it uses, of course, it uses living off the land binaries like PowerShell uh, to say, you know, I'm going to collect some action, or actually, once it gets there, it's working on collecting system information. So it's gathering system names, credentials, if possible, then uh, a large list of types of files that include JPEGs, you know, uh, MP4s, MP3s, text documents, etc. Um, you know, the list goes on, but it has has or it knows what it's looking for and then it uploads everything via ftp which in my mind is possibly the only saving grace <laughs> to say that it is an educational tool because if you're using ftp to extract all this then yeah okay we know ftp is kind of like a insecure you can really read the data so you, if you're listening to the wire you can see the username and password and Wireshark or other technologies as such. Um, but, you know, if you're in an organization and you don't use FTP because it's insecure and all of a sudden you see FTP, there you go, right? Uh, but the same, of course, if someone gets this and retools it or reconfigures it, use SSH or port 80 or port 443, whatever the case may be, then, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of, or you, your work's a lot harder, correct? And finally, 
what else you know it's an all-in-one so why would it not have a ransomware capability yeah. where yeah you know, it just immediately impacts your system gives you time your time place to give you the money and move on but just find it it's a very fascinating tool as i'm always fascinated by these toolkits because of what they do and how they do it especially like, like i said and I hate to repeat myself, but the inclusion of that 187 machines from Virus Total was just genius to me. It's right? interesting recon. Right. Like they did the dirty work to see, like, well, who's using Virus Total the most? You know, well known researchers, whatever the case would be. But, you know, it's out there. There's definitely some hunting techniques that you could use, especially if you're miter, if you're miter tag framework focused, if that you're if your or your threat hunt is being driven by the miter tag framework, you got miter technique uh, 1566, which is you know phishing. Now that captures with a link, with an email, or with a uh, attachment. And then you could search up any command and scripting interpreters, which is technique 1059. Um, and you know 1059 includes not only PowerShell, but Windows Command, Visual Basic, Python, JavaScript, you name it. But those techniques are out there. If that's you know if that's the goal or that's what drives your threat hunting process, they're there. All right, I'm gonna breathe now. What do you? What <laughs> yeah. <are> your... <laughs> no. So yeah, the one thing that I thought was really interesting was the whole recon of the sandboxes because one, I feel like you'd almost like write a custom little sample to submit so that you can start enumerating those. It's not specifically this sample. And then not only that, but you're also aware that people that run those environments, like the only way they build a new host name is if they build a new host. Like no one's changing those names. So it's an interesting way to try to skirt some of that stuff. The only thing you run into is like the independent researchers, like the home lab stuff that, you know, you're, you can kind of just prevent yourself from popping up on those big public domain ones. And then the other thing was they were constantly stopping on the PS read line directory, which was interesting. Um, because you know it's written all in PowerShell, and then they convert it. They do a power. They run an open source tool, then you know PS2 EXE, uh, and it basically turns that PowerShell into an executable. So it was it was interesting why they were basically stomping on the PS readline directory and the app data, the Windows PowerShell directory, uh, because that usually controls like how the interface of PowerShell works, but it also contains the history command uh pass usage and so they use that if it was going to self-destruct like if it detected something it didn't want to run it used that as part of its destruction process and then when it did the ransomware perspective it also used that in between i'm guessing potential and you know encrypted files maybe trying to get rid of the key the encryption key but like i said it's weird because like it's kind of destroying the artifacts or power so even though it's running as an exe that was compiled so that, that part was really was weird behavior. So, you know, I know there's some tools that can let you monitor when things get deleted or kind of tamper with for auditing things in that directory. That might be interesting to try to audit because you should have weird interactions from uh, executables that you wouldn't expect to even touch that directory, which might be a good fingerprint for this. Uh, so that, those are the two major, and then the FTP thing. I thought that was interesting too, because a lot of times that's locked down or you're aware of your FTP, but if you're not, it's definitely something you should profile in your environment. Like where is FTP being used and does any of it go external? Um, but yeah, those are like the key pieces that I kind of picked up on. Cool, cool. All right, what do you have next for us? So yeah, I wanted to touch on, you know, I'm starting to see more Mac in general stuff, but they had the, uh, something from uh, the latest hacking news and it was, the Lockbit 
ransomware aims to target macOS systems, but may not be as successful. So, you know, within that uh, article, reading through it, there was actually a, a pivot to objectivec.org that had a blog where a guy actually analyzes the Lockbit ransomware that was built for the Mac and or the Mac OS. And the, the thing that was really interesting was it looked like it was a really poor attempt of just testing it for Mac OS based things because it had all the artifacts when you ran strings, for instance, against the file, all the Windows artifacts, the Linux artifacts and ESXi artifacts. Um, so that was interesting, right? Because usually the binaries are very different depending on what your target is because they don't execute the same. So there's no reason to keep that stuff in there. So like they kind of like they built on to try to do some things with it. But, you know, I also think it's interesting that they're starting to put their eyes on the Mac OS stuff. Uh, because, you know, when I think of people that use the Mac OS, I think of people that do a lot with like video music, you know, graphic design, that type of stuff. So then I was like, oh, maybe there's a different now footprint of revenue they might be trying to target as far as like, hey, the movie and music industry make a lot of money. And if they were to hit an environment, but they have people that are using Macs that will, won't be touched, you know, they may not lose the data they think they lose. And, you know, there's potential because, I mean, if a movie doesn't get out in production, there's a lot of money lost and they can't reshoot that stuff without a lot of cost. So there might be good targets. So I was kind of thinking maybe that's where their head was at with some of this. But, you know, that's just how my mind just works. So it might not necessarily be accurate there. Um, but the one thing that's interesting, too, is, you know, the Mac OS is actually why they said it might not be as successful is they did a really good job with kind of the the right protections and reprotections within the OS about what can read, write and where, depending on uh, how, you know, where things fall on, on the layout of the operating system in general. So there's a lot of really good built in protections that make it more difficult, as well as how they do their signature. Uh, execution allowance, I should call it, basically meaning that if you were to pull in some random software and try to run it, the Mac's pretty good at saying, I don't know where this is, I don't know where this came from, I'm not going to let you run it. I think, you know, obviously with the right permissions, you can like bypass that and click through something or whatever, um, but it is not as easy to just execute as it would be on a typical like Windows or Linux system. So that was also interesting. Uh, but yeah, the, the one thing I did notice in the write-up report that I did like is it pulled out all the command line arguments that are associated with Lockbit. Um, so it's kind of informative as far as what kind of switches can you use when you execute it. A lot of times they do pass or protect their execution so that it's harder to analyze. But the one thing that kind of was unfortunate is I, when I look at command line arguments to kind of build behaviors based on execution, I like to have examples so I can determine what, what patterns or what order people put switches in and stuff like that. Um, and, and unfortunately, that wasn't covered as an examples of execution. It was more just here's the capabilities. But it was a good, definitely a pivot to the ObjectiveC.org blog was a great pivot to just kind of really informative stuff about that specific example and kind of how it works. Yeah, no, so you mentioned something that <clears throat> I was really drawn to, and then it's the, the command line arguments and parameters and stuff, right? Um, but when it comes to like, the way I think of it is like you mentioned it as well is the determining behavior aspect of it. What is the order they're putting it in? Do they put that in? You know, if you look at articles from you know report to report to report, are they in the same? Are they in the same order? And you know, so in my mind, when I think about threat hunting and how to approach this, the most basic way I would do this, and 
the easiest win is to say, all right, I'm going to take all the command line arguments and I'm going to put them in a list and say command line contains boom, this, right? Then the next step up to be a little more advanced is possibly figure out, okay, well, what are the values that are associated with those parameters that they use? A lot like delay. Is the delay over? You know, like just looking at this example, it's dash A or dash dash delay. Mm -hmm. And it says start delay in minutes. Is the delay real quick? Is it, you know, under five minutes? Is it consistently over thousand minutes? Or is it like if it changes from a report to report, is it trying to determine, hey, we infected this at noon. We need to be quiet for at least 12 hours or at least five or six hours. So this person is possibly off their computer, away from work, and then it starts starts to run, right? Then the next step you could do as like the super advanced, and I'm thinking more of attribution-based hunting. And I know I personally don't do that a lot because Quite frankly, attribution is a game that blows my mind and how some experts do it is just insane. But like you said, is the order, does the order change? If so, by how much? Like how much uh, different is it? Is it just one thing out of order? Is it the entire command line arguments just switched? But then you can start getting an idea of, you know, a more specific hunt to say, all right, if we are looking for this, then this might be APTX. Right. Or if another threat group is using it, you can say, well, they're putting it in this order. It seems more like APTZ. Um, and that, that's really just where my brain went whenever I come to picking up artifacts like these. You know, what's the easiest way I can determine, you know, what's going on here? How can I be a little more advanced? And then how can I really like almost profile some the user that's using it? Oh, I hope so. that made sense to our listeners. <laughs> I think you're spot on as far as looking at just how common tools are being used by individuals. You know, it's, right. I guess a similar thing is I remember, you know, when people learn to attack boxes, they kind of get that prescription. Well, you run this and then you run this and you run this and it gives you all this information. Well, people or creatures of habit, they typically run those specific, like maybe they want to do IP config first and they want to do a task list first. They usually run those in the same order, even not even just from like command line arguments, but even like the order of execution of different things because they like to see information a certain way because they know exactly what to do with it at what step and that kind of thing too so similar and i mean we're we're human mm -hmm. right we go yeah. with what's comfortable cool so what do you got next next is a it's from the cybersecurity news and i it's the 20 best threat hunting tools of 2023 which I mean, it's April, so maybe someone else will make the list. I don't know. Cyborg. But, <laughs> but I really like, I was going through the list, and I really like the fact that they didn't just name a bunch. Of, like, when I look at, when I immediately think of this list, and I think about what time is, what time is it? And it's RSA week. So, you know, there's a lot of marketing going on out there. At first, I was skeptical, like, oh, great, you know, of course, this is going to cover the top 20 RSA or organizations, you know, companies, but it doesn't. Granted, there is Splunk, there's CrowdStrike, there's some, you know, vendors that you have to pay for, but then there's open source things like Wireshark, TCP dump, like tools that you can get access to in a, you know, put on your lab machine for free. Number 10, I'm sure you saw it, 
Sysmon, of course. I think it's been higher, but I'll talk to the editor soon. Um, but, you know, didn't just lock you down into an environment of pay to play, right? It gave you options to say, well, you know what? How do I, you know, how do I use this? It also gives features, demo videos, and pros and cons. So it gives, you know, it was a very objective assessment, which I really appreciate from an organization, right? It's like I said again, it's not just pay to play. But what also was of note, they first defined threat hunting. And from, from the article itself it says, threat hunting aims to recognize and respond to threats that have avoided conventional security protocols, such as firewalls, antivirus programs, and intrusion detection systems. Then it breaks threat hunting into three methodologies, right? Or three phases. And it says initial trigger phase, an investigation phase, and a resolution phase. Now, the trigger, which I was really focused on because, so at Cyborg, our, our idea, of threat hunting is it's a proactive process that is based on hypotheses to find malicious activity in your environment that's not from an alert or a detection. So they pretty much, we pretty much match that idea with this article, right? It's, it's you are being proactive, you have an idea of what you're going for, and that trigger to me, it could be an Intel report, it could be a new piece of malware, new APT group activity, whatever the case may be, but there's something in your mind um, that says, I'm going to look for PowerShell activity. Whatever that trigger is, as long as it's not an alert or detection, uh, you know, that you're reacting to, as long as you stay proactive, I think that really matches up, which is really good, especially because of the, a lot of definitions out there of threat hunting that exist. You know, I've heard threat hunting is taking a list of IOCs and throwing it in your environment or in Splunk and saying, yeah, we're good or no, you know, we're compromised when, you know, IOCs really shouldn't be used to drive a threat hunt, in my opinion. That's more of the incident response. But I'll, I'll jump off that soapbox before we get too deep. But then it talks about the types of threat hunting, you know, structured, unstructured. So like, are you, is this the repeatable process that you have ironed out and worked with your environment? Is it the day-to-day -day threat hunting? Whereas unstructured, it's more ad hoc. And in my mind, what I think about structured is, you know, we have a backlog of ideas. We have a backlog of hypotheses. Say, you know, if once again, if it's MITRE tag driven, we're gonna focus on initial access. What are the technique IDs we're looking at? Boom, 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 you list them out. Then unstructured hunting is like, hey, there was an article about X trader compromise and then 3X or CX. How do we hunt for that in our environment, right? You know, like stuff like that. That's the unstructured. Then they have situational hunting which they says they addresses specific security incidents or situations this this kind of goes in or i think personally that it goes into the like profiling of your own environment right you're looking at your server how does my server behave how should it behave is it behaving the right way and then looking at different ways that you know to determine what would be malicious from a server point of view um and then they go through and they talk about the difference between threat hunting and incident response, which is huge, because I think that speaks well to the management of taking your existing incident responders and trying to make them threat hunters is, I'm not saying you can't do it, I'm saying it's just gonna be a lift, because you're taking someone out of the train of thought that they've probably been working in for a while, where they say, this alert triggers, I know how I'm gonna run the investigation, I know what artifacts I'm looking for, 
But how are you going to do that without the alert or the detection? It's not impossible, but it's just a different frame of thought. And if management can understand that and understand what it's going to take to implement a threat hunting process and, you know, in, within your environment, then then you'll be successful. But you have to understand they're not one and the same. But it's a great list. It features, like I said, it features open source tools that you can install. It gives you videos of how to use the tool. And, you know, with the wonder of the internet, I'm sure you could find more information about each tool, more documentation that if you do decide to adopt it in your lab, you could learn it really quick. But a real shout out to the cybersecurity news team for this. And if I find it, let's see, it was by the whole team. Not a, I was going to give a shout out to the editor, uh, but it's the cybersecurity news team. But still well done. Um, thank you, cybersecurity news, for that. Yeah, so I thought this was kind of cool to see everything all together. I think, like you said, the timing made sense with the whole RSA, you know, occurring. So I figured, you know, that uh, didn't really surprise me. And I do like how they laid everything out like you described. But I also like seeing the pros and cons. Like, that's like my favorite thing when I come across lists of like any topic. when You can kind of shake it out because one, I like to just kind of there's tools I haven't seen. Like what are, what are their first takes on that? Second, if I see a tool I have, seeing the pros and cons and see do they line up with what I actually think because that's usually really telling and there's you know even some tools in here that i don't think i've used before granted there's a lot of paid for tools as well in the list but yeah no i think it's like a nice kind of like how do i shake with what i've got versus what other people have i do wish there was more clarity on why they ranked them the way they did um because some tools i think kind of don't fairly compete um as far as like they they look at completely different telemetry and the availability of the data is you know, different and the approach is different so it'd be kind of cool to have seen more details around that but than that like, like i said it's always good to have a list of tools especially when you start looking i love to find new open source tools just to see how well they work how how do they work and stuff like that and then you know because those are usually the tools that if i feel like there's gaps in the environment i try to plug gaps with open source tools before trying to buy a product so yeah absolutely cool. i wish uh, and if they are listening hopefully it'd be easy to do a open sourced versus guess, vendor list mm -hmm. um for all the threat hunters out there um well i guess independent and enterprise because if you could if you could make a list that's more geared towards like an enterprise that can uh, you know can buy the big ticket items uh, versus the people that are trying to break into cybersecurity or become a threat hunter, and they're just sitting up their home lab. That'd be awesome. But still, thank you very much, cybersecurity news. That, that was a great article, a great list. Absolutely. I'm done for the podcast. I'm going home. Well, we got What's one more. <laughs> yeah, so this one I, I grabbed only because just recently saw it, and it kind of played into what I was talking about before with the uh, Lockbit ransomware targeting Mac OS. And there's a, it's a GitHub repo. InfoSec B, and it's called LOBINS, and it stands for Living Off the Orchard. Orchard, pronounce that better. And it's really about that living off the land concept of adversaries when you know, it came to like Windows and Linux, but for Mac OS. And what's nice is it's just a beginning of kind of a breakout, but when you actually drill into the different LOBINS, you see where there's the YAML files associated with different bins that are associated with Mac OS. And he has pretty good descriptions on, hey, if you see 
there's been being called with these types of arguments, you know, and he has like multiple different types of, you know, quasi detections for those scenarios with the same bin. It's kind of interesting to see how starting to build some of those things out. And I think it's a great opportunity if you do have Macs in your environment to be aware of um, what bins, local bins that the uh, adversaries could use. Because there's not, you know, it's always good to have a good understanding or, or that idea of how, what you expect on a normal uh, environment where you where you know the MacBook is running like you expect, as well as to what does it look like when people try to modify or change things on the system by using these binaries. And not only that, you know, do you even have telemetry to see these binaries in action? It's another telling thing because obviously as people start to publishing things of hey. These are what adversaries could use. Adversaries are also seeing these as well, and they might try to incorporate these because they might learn something from them. So if you can't see them at all, it'd probably be a good idea to figure out well, what would it take to actually gain that kind of visibility. So pretty, pretty brief. It's not really an article per se, but I thought it was a good thing for people to go check out and kind of tell people that it exists and kind of what's in it. No, I like that. So the first thing that came to my mind was the what the github project lolbass which is the living mm -hmm. off the land binaries for windows so if you're not familiar it exists as well i think i'm just gonna the information i'm gonna add is just more resources these like you said this is it's not telling us about anything about like attacks but it's a great resource and i like that it called out that it said it does not include an overlapping unix binaries that are detailed in the gtfo bins which is like the Lobas project, but for Unix. So it's it's great that people are recognizing that these exist and they can still be used to blend in with the traffic. And of course, the final thing is that you can have that the MitreTag framework or the MitreTag matrix, which you know I think we've said 30 times or so, and I think uh, Supi or someone should stop you know just stop us before we say it that many times but it has its own mac os matrix so you have all these resources out there that you could cross-reference mm -hmm. so you know you have you now have the living living off the orchard binaries that you can compare to the mitre tech framework the mac os matrix to see well what does it look like if do i want more information where can i go but yeah great resources out there it fortunately i'm going to say hopefully we're not seeing the trend to full-blown mac attacks but it's definitely uh, definitely picking up, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be kind of hitting the radar at least. I know in the past it's hit the radar and kind of fallen off before, so it kind of comes in spurts. But um, I don't know. I feel like everything's getting more user friendly and convenient. The you might start seeing where it becomes just more part of the landscape in general. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm really worried that you know my biggest worry is when is that gonna when is it just gonna be the full fledged like. Apple needs to rebuild, right? Or, or I mean, Windows didn't really rebuild itself. They we still have living up land binaries and stuff that are constantly using. They they maintain the same, right? It, it's just an interesting future to look forward to. Yeah, for security. <laughs> cool. Well, I think that concludes everything. I know we want to make sure to mention your workshop coming up, Hunting for Impact, on April twenty sixth, um, twelve. Yeah, from 12 to 1 p.m. I don't know if you want to give a, a quick synopsis of what that is. Yeah, so if you've never if you've never attended our threat hunting workshops, what it is is we focus on one MITRE attack tactic, 
this time it's going to be impact. So we're looking for you know ransomware or pre-ransomware activity, um, but that still reconfigures or damages your environment to the to the point where it's harder to recover from. What we do is we've we have two attacks. We provide you with an OVA or a virtual box machine that you can download and install and or sorry and run. And we give you a log file that you can upload into Elastic. Our OVA contains Elastic, so all you gotta do is find out your IP, put in your browser once everything's up and running, and you can start hunting in that Elastic instance. And what I do is I will demonstrate two hunts, starting with a hunter or two hunter plat or <laughs> hunter hunt packages, and then how we can leverage those packages to find malicious activity and then find relations relationships between the events that exist there and ultimately be able to tell what happened and paint the bigger picture you know for whoever we're responding to or whoever we're reporting to um, but it's always a good time yeah you have the you get, what you get out of it is the machine and the log data so you can keep that and play with it as much as you want um, and then if you there's always a flag so if you put your skills to the test you can earn a badge that you can show your friends very cool yeah, and then the other thing we have coming up, it's another top cover, the third edition, and it's gonna be topics gonna be on reporting and communications, and that'll be May 24th from 12 to 12:30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which I'll basically be covering different ways to communicate when it comes to threat hunting and reporting out the necessary things based on your audience and and so forth, and what good com communication could look like. So with that, I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to, you know, syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of April 24th, 2023. All right. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and happy hunting. Yeah, happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.